Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. Uh, we're just taking a, a break from Revelation for now um, and kind of focusing in on, I just uh, been doing this a few times throughout the, the year so far, just kind of stories of grace and, and how they impact our lives because how we tell stories and especially telling ourselves stories of grace is important. And and it's, it's important in a couple of different ways as we think about what God is doing in our lives and also how we process uh, what is going on in our lives and how we bless others in the midst of what's going on in our lives. And at the same time, so uh, I think of it, I was thinking about this somewhat, uh, uh, we got Annalisa in, in upward basketball, you know, third grade, she's just, just learning how to play or whatever. Um, and you do different things with different kids, right, to help them to grow and, and change and, and progress. And uh, discipleship and parenting are very similar in a lot of ways in the fact that you're trying to uh, bring them along in, in a couple of different ways. Like if, if all I did with my kids was preach to them, you know, every morning, uh, they wouldn't really follow my example too much, right? You know, like, so it, when we talk about church, we're not just talking about coming together and listening to a sermon and worshiping together. Church is about following Jesus. It's about being a group of people, a family, if you will, who are seeking to follow Jesus and to walk with him and to, and to walk together walking, uh, following him. And, and, and how we do that is important. It's not just like, oh, that's just, uh, it's not that important, you know. It's like me saying, well, it's not that important that I, that I have fun with my kids, that I enjoy doing different things with my kids. No, actually, that's probably in some ways more important than if I have family devotions with them. It's not, that, it's not like you're not doing both. It's just you, you need both kinds of things happening. And, uh, and as we look here in Ephesians chapter 1, we're looking at at the Holy Spirit working in us, helping us to see what it means to be ch children of God, to be saved. You know, so sometimes we think, okay, well, you know, getting saved or becoming a Christian, it's about having your sins forgiven. It's about getting, in a sense, uh, uh, knowing that you're going to heaven. And, and that's, that's all that matters, right? But actually, God is, is, is beginning and developing a relationship with you. He wants to walk with you for eternity. You, in a sense, he's inviting you in to be a part of what he is doing for eternity. And that means that he is doing way more than just saying, oh, you know what, what you did in the past that, you're, that you messed up on and you, you didn't do it for me. No, okay, I forgive that. He's doing way more than that. And Ephesians chapter 1 really captures the things that he is doing. And, and he's doing it in such a way that he wants it to, to overflow, not just for us to feel good about ourselves, but to overflow in our relationships with others. I was thinking about this in terms of even Galatians chapter 5. You don't have to turn there, but I've got it up here. It says, verse 18 says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Like if the Spirit is working in you, it's, it's, you're, not, you're not worried about really like, okay, you know, have, have I obeyed all the rules? He says, now the works of the flesh are evidence, sexual immorality, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Spirit of God is not involved in these kinds of activities. The things we, 
in a sense, use each other to gain pleasure or gain security or gain comfort. These things are death, right? But he goes on to say the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is things there is no law. And these things belong, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So he's saying this is what the Spirit is, is seeking to do in our lives now that we're, uh, we belong to Christ Jesus. And that idea of fruit is, is the idea, some, sometimes in my growing up, you know, I, I'm imagining, imagining fruit is mostly inside of me. Like, okay, love, joy, peace are things that, that are produced in me. Like I feel loving or I feel joyful or I feel peaceful. And that's not wrong, but it's not complete. Because the fruit is... Is, is fruitfulness in, in Scripture is not just what's inside of me. It's what we're, what's out here. It's what's with us. Like, it's really hard to practice kindness myself, right? Like, I'm, I'm feeling kind, you know? No, kindness is something that happens as I treat someone else differently. Maybe they expect, right? Goodness. Again, it's, it's something that's out here. And, and the the fruit of the Spirit is something that we do, in a sense, we work together because we're, we're seeking to walk in the Spirit, and, and, and of course, it comes out, it overflows out of what we've received. But that overflowing aspect of what God does in our lives is, is something that we, we struggle with at times, right? And that's what Ephesians, especially Ephesians chapter 1, is dealing with, is he's saying there are certain things that are yours spiritually that you have, if you are a child of God, if you are redeemed, if you have been forgiven of your sin, if, if Christ has, has, has purchased you with his blood, then these things are things you have. But do you realize it? And, and if you realize it, you, it should overflow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness. Because the Spirit is at work in you. And so, this morning, my sermon is uh, it's more focused on application in Ephesians chapter 1 than trying to explain every, every aspect of Ephesians chapter 1. I'm just going to kind of float over the top of Ephesians chapter 1, hit the highlights of the details, but help you to think practically about how you let the truths of Ephesians chapter 1 live in your life in such a way that they overflow. Because it's not just enough, to, in a sense, to come here and, and listen to a sermon about Ephesians chapter 1 and think, okay, I know that I'm chosen, I know that I'm redeemed, I know that I'm you know, adopted. I want you to realize you're chosen even when it feels like you're not. <laughs> I want you to know you're adopted even when it feels like you're rejected by other people and sometimes even God. And I want you to be able to let that overflow as the Spirit uses those truths in your heart, in your life, to transform your perspective and, and let that fruit come out in various ways in your life. And so I'm going to focus primarily applicationally, but let's read Ephesians chapter 1 together as, as we've already sung a little bit of the truths already uh, this morning. Follow along. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed. Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So he's saying, the Father of our Savior has placed us into Christ and he's given us all of these spiritual blessings. These are things, again, that if you are a believer, you have. It's not like you have to work to attain it. This is what you already have in Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So he chose us before the foundation of the world. Before he even created the world, he knew that he was going to choose us to be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. We are adopted into the family of God. It's not just that we're like, okay, pulled out of the mud, wiped clean, and said, okay, go on your way. But no, we're brought into the family of God. We're, We're placed into that family. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. We have been redeemed through Christ's death and resurrection. We've been bought out of the slave market of sin. All our mistakes, all our failures, redeemed. And all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, bringing together the things that are happening on earth and the things that are happening in heaven together so that they fully come together because Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, all in all, right? And so the the purpose we live for, as we'll see, is all about Christ and what he is doing in the world. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we, who were first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. This is who you are in Christ. You are to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. We have the Holy Spirit, again, sealing us as a, as a down payment, if you will, of the inheritance that we will receive. And, and so that we take these truths and we, and we think about what does it mean that God has made me in Christ? What, what, what are these possessions that I have? What are these blessings that I have? And how does that affect the way that I interact with people and even with myself on a, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? And so... The first one I want to get is go back to the beginning there in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, and look at being chosen, being chosen, right? Because oftentimes we can go through life and we can feel excluded. We can feel on the outside. We can feel like, you know what? I didn't get that promotion I wanted. I, I, that, that person I thought would ask me out did not ask me out. The, 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 the child that I thought would be excited for what I... <laughs> 
was planning for their life uh, decided they didn't want any of it, right? We are excluded. We're on the outside. Entertainer Garrison Keillor recalls the childhood pain of being chosen last for the baseball team. Some of you experienced this. Some of you did not, right? The captains are down to their last grudging choices, he says. A slow kid for catcher, someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it anyway. They choose the last kid's Two at a time, you and you, because it makes no difference. And the remaining kids, the scrubs, the excess, they, they deal for us as handicaps. If I take him, then you got to take him, they say. Garrison says, sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first and say, him, I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes, you, come on. But I've never been chosen with that much enthusiasm. That is the way we feel sometimes in life, right? Like, no, they, no, nobody really wants me. Nobody really wants me on their team, right? But here, God says that he has chosen us from the foundation of the world. And since he created the world in order to choose us, to make us part of his team and to set us before him holy and blameless, and, and this is who we are in Christ. Again, you didn't earn this. You don't deserve this, but he chose you. He puts you on his team, so to speak. And, and we have to think in the midst of life as we're going through life and we feel at various times chose and excluded. We feel like we're on the outside. We feel like we're, we're, not, we're not able to get in with the whatever crowd you think you should be a part of, right? I can't get there. But in Christ, you're already there. And that perspective changes the way we think about ourselves. It changes the way that we re relate to other people as well and the way we extend grace. Because if we have received grace, we can overflow with it. Another story I ran across, soccer season was starting once again. This year, the father says, my tiny 35-pound five-year-old daughter would be playing micro-league for the Bombers. As we walked to the first practice on a cool summer day, I was anxious to see who the coach would be. Would his focus be on making the game fun and a team experience, or would he focus on goals and winning? As, I, as practice began, I met the coach, Ray. My first impression was that Ray was a good man. Any lingering doubt about him vanished when an odd occurrence incident occurred during practice. The white shirts versus the blue shirts. As they began, an olive-skinned boy, who we later learned spoke no English, wandered from the playground over to the sidelines of the game. He watched. Wandered. Moments later, I looked for him again, but he was gone. Then I noticed that now there were 13 bombers running up and down the field. The boy, perfectly camouflaged in blue shorts and a white t-shirt, had joined the team, the white team. He ran. He passed. He kicked. He smiled. No one seemed to notice that he wasn't part of the team. No one yet said, he hasn't paid the fees. The proper forms and releases have not been signed. Soon, however, a ball rolled into a mother's lap. And as the new boy ran to fetch it, the mom innocently said to the coach, he's not on the team. The kids, who had not even noticed that a new friend was on the field, stopped. The co coach looked down at the now very dirty boy, saying, he's not? Hmm. There was a pause as the boy looked up at Ray, who held his soccer fate, at least this day. If 
Finally, Ray made his judgment. He put his hand on the small boy's small back and said, come on, let's play soccer. And off ran all 13 bombers, right? None of us deserve to be on God's team. We haven't earned it, nor have we paid the price ourselves. Yet in his grace, Jesus chooses us to be on the best team in the universe. And you'll go through life, sometimes feeling excluded yourself, sometimes noticing others who feel excluded. On the outside, not able to get in with whatever in means. And how do we let the grace that we have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world change the way we react to those messages, change the way we help those around us who often are reacting to those same messages themselves? And here's just maybe my, my encouragement to you even in this is to think about journaling. If you're, if you're struggling to make sure that you understand what it means to be in Christ, to, to let these truths of Scripture to change your perspective, change your relationships so that you are bearing fruit in love, joy, and peace, then here's some questions you can ask yourself in this particular area. When did I feel excluded or like an outsider today or this week? Where do I need to be reminded I'm chosen. And maybe just take, you know, if you're journaling, you take 15, 20 minutes and reflect on your day or your week, and you're thinking, where did that happen? Where did that message come through? And, and the reverse side is, did I notice someone who could have felt that way as well? Did I notice someone who was like, oh, they were pulling back because they felt on the outside? What can I share of my grace of being chosen? Why? Because you're, you're just processing how this truth that I'm chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. It should affect when, when, when I feel excluded, when someone is like, no, nah, you don't measure up for some reason. I can step back into who I really am in Christ. Now, they don't say who I am. Christ says who I am. And so we process the message we've received they might exclude, they might, they might have, they have got some, some issues they're going through, or they've got some things that God wants them to do. I don't know what it is, but here's what I do know. I'm chosen before the foundation of the world. This is who I am in Christ. This is how I can live out of this. God has control. He's put me on his team, and he's working that out. And these, these truths from Ephesians chapter 1 are more like a, a pearl necklace. They're, they're strings that go together. They're strung together in such a way that they overlap, in a sense, because being chosen and being adopted are very similar in some ways. But it's, being chosen is, again, like being chosen on a team. Like, okay, I'll take you for a little while, but then you're on your own kind of thing. But, or I'll clean you up or do something for you. But being adopted is a whole other level of being chosen, if you will. And we know what it feels like to be abandoned or ignored. We know what it's like to feel like uh, we're second-class citizens, like, yeah, I'm here, but, but it's not because people want me. I'm on the team, <laughs> but I'm not really that important to the team. Have you ever felt like that? That sense of second-class citizen, like what I do and who I am don't really matter. But adoption is a whole other level of you matter. You're important. 
Why? Because we view each individual member of our family as important, unique, special. They're not all going to do the same things, but they're all part of the family. We're all going to take care of them. They're all important. We can't say we're a family if we're not all together, if you will. i got to figure out who told this story here. Um, Matt Woodley tells this story he ran across with his, his neighbor who wasn't a believer himself, but he went down to South America for adoption. He says, he ran, he says his friend Andy told him this story. 18 years ago, my friend Andy and his wife traveled to South America to complete their adoption of a little girl. At the time, this country was gripped by corruption and violence and political chaos. After Andy arrived, they, that is anyone who could profit from Andy's process, kept upping the price for the adoption. When he finally t- threatened to take the matter to the U.S. consulate, a mysterious figure confronted Andy, warning him of vague but dreadful consequences for doing so. It was like a spy thriller, except nobody actually wants to be in a spy thriller themselves, right? But he refused to leave without his daughter. The odd thing was that Andy had never even met the girl yet. She was small and helpless. She hadn't won any awards or aced any tests. He didn't know that one day her smile would light up the room or that she loved their cats and dogs or that she played Mozart. For all practical purposes, she was just an orphan condemned to a life of grinding poverty in a far-flung developing country. But for some crazy reason, Andy stayed, negotiating with corrupt officials, spending oodles of money, squandering time, and even risking his life to find and win the little girl. Now, 18 years later, Andy is telling me about this high school graduation for Maria, his adopted daughter. At one point during the meal, Maria unexpectedly stood up and gave a speech thanking everyone who hopes to find a better life on Long Island. As Andy told me the story, he says, uh, he was trying to fight back the tears. I got the impression that he could have lived a hundred more years or even a hundred lifetimes. And nothing would compare to hearing Maria's spontaneous thank you. He says, when he finished telling me the story, it struck me that Andy, my non-Christian friend, had discovered the heart of the gospel, God's loving, daring, persistent pursuit of people like you and me. Like Maria, there's nothing we can do to earn God's love, but he still loves us. He doesn't want to leave us behind. Instead, in the presence of Jesus, God walked into our sin and our pain and brought us home, right? And this is what it means to be adopted. It's not just that we're, that we're in a sense, on the team, but that we're part of the family. That we're, that this is, I'm willing to spend money to make this part of the family, to rejoice together, to raise, to work, to provide. And that's what God does for us. He doesn't just take us and throw us in a bathtub and clean us up and then send us on our way. He brings us into the family. He says, I'm going to buy some new clothes. I'm give you some fun things to do. I'll give you some challenges to do. You got to do some chores. <laughs> it's part of being part of the family. And this is what we have in Christ. In her book, The Unexpected Legacy of Divorce, Judith Wallerstein writes about the opposite of adoption, in a sense. She says, Children in post-divorce families do not, on the whole, feel happier, wealthier, healthier, or more well-adjusted, even if both 
or one parents, one or both parents are happier themselves. National studies show that parents, children from divorced and remarried families are more aggressive toward their parents and teachers. They're, they experience more depression, have more learning difficulties, suffer from more problems with peers than children from intact families. It's traveling on an airplane alone when, you feel, when you're seven to go visit your parents. It's having no choice how you spend your time and feeling like a second-class citizen compared with your friends in intact families who have some say about how they spend, how children, he's saying children in intact families have some say about how they spend their weekends and their vacations. It's wondering whether you'll have financial help for college from your college-educated father given that he has no legal obligation to pay. It's reaching adulthood with acute anxiety. Will you ever find a faithful woman to love you? Will you find a man you can trust? Not one of the men or women from divorced families whose lives I report on this, she's talking about in this book she's writing on, wanted their children to repeat their childhood experiences. That ripping apart of the family. That's saying, your needs aren't as important But adoption says the opposite. Even though you're not technically part of the family yet, your needs are just as important, right? I'm going to make your needs my problem. And that's what God does with us. He he adopts us into his family. We we have this. We we go through life, right? And we, we look around us and we say, I've got needs. I know I've got needs. And you know what? Most of the people you run into are not going to make your needs as important as theirs. They're just not. But God did this for us. And so you'll go through life and you'll hear the message, you're not that important. You know, your issues aren't that important. Your hopes and dreams aren't that important. What, what you want to see out of your life, yeah, yeah, yeah. Get what you can, you know. But you're, we're adopted God cares for us. He has a, as we're going to see later on here, he's got a great plan for our lives. So these are the truths we have. This is, this is, this is how we, 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 not, we are adopted and we can let that overflow in how we look at others then, right? We can ask what's going on and treat what they're doing as valuable. The issues they face, the hopes and dreams they have as truly important. And you say to yourself, well, I don't have Christians, many Christians doing that to me. Well, you know what happens is, if you don't do it to others, it's like this, it doesn't happen. You've, you've, got, you've got to start doing it yourself to other people. But how do you do this? And again, I would just encourage you, if you're struggling with this, to think about journaling for a while. And here's some questions you could ask yourself. Did I feel like a second-class citizen at some point today or this week? What started that? How has my adoption by God changed my perception of myself? Have I thought about my adoption lately? Did I notice someone who cares, who's carrying that same weight? <laughs> who can I treat as a first-class part of my family, so to speak? Who can I treat around me as, in a sense, you're truly important? Why? Because of the grace that we have received in Christ. And again, I'm probably not going to have time to go through all of these, but let's just look at a few more together. Being redeemed. Being redeemed, right? Notice again what it says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
This is what God knows how to take all of our failures, all of our guilt, and transform it into things that do, do good to us and do good to others. Dan Allender put it this way, Jesus relentlessly undermines all that is not God to make room for the God who has redeemed our hearts. We have so many other things that we want to place and say, this is truly important. This is, this is what's going to save me, you know. If I feel like a failure in high school, you know what? If I just get that scholarship, you know, I'll be good. If I, if I feel like I'm a failure in a relationship, I'll just, just find this one person, this one person, we put all our hopes and dreams on finding the one, Right? And instead, God wants to undermine that and put our hope in what he has done for us because he has redeemed us. All that sense of failure, that sense of guilt. There's a reason Romans 8, 28 is in the Bible. God works, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose, he works everything together for good. Not that everything is good, but God has the ability to take even the things that are evil and redeem them. This is what we have in Christ. Douglas LeBlanc, who's an associate editor at Christianity Today, tells his sense of this. He says, My sense of Christmas joy is focused on a specific moment each year. When I stand in a a church at midnight, Christmas Eve, and sing the French carol, Angels We Have Heard on High. You've probably sung it a few times yourself. He says, one of my fondest memories of Christmas Eve involves singing the carol alongside my father when I was around nine years old. He said, dad was a deeply shy man, so he normally would sing hymns in the softest tones. On this night, though, he sang it full bore, off key, and with the deepest yearning that I had ever heard in him. Dad was drunk. That night was the perfect image of the life dad and I had shared for many of my growing years. He was melancholic, battered, an army veteran of World War II who saw many of his friends blown to bits. He sought refuge in alcohol, which made life pretty frightening for his, for his mom, my older brother Randy, and me. But in church I saw the just gentle Cajun who grew up Catholic and who still feared God. Only a few years after this service, my brother became a hippie-turned-Christian or a Jesus freak, as they were called back then. Dad began reading the Bible to help my brother realize how far he had stepped off the course. (laughs) Within a year, Dad faced the reality that my brother had found a relationship with Jesus that Dad had not discovered. Dad surrendered to Jesus. Then, he says, his drinking simply stopped. He still struggled with anger. We still argued about the length of my hair, my failure to practice the piano, my half-hearted efforts at homework. Still, I began associating my dad more with love than with fear, he says. I spent nearly every Christmas with dad until his death in 1992. I know we sing Angels We Have Heard on High together many times, but somehow my keenest memory is of dad singing it with such yearning. Now when I sing this carol in my early 40s, I know a small measure of the yearning dad felt when I was a boy. I closed my eyes and imagined Dad in heaven singing along at the top of his redeemed lungs. The Dad was drunk. <laughs> what good can come of that? No. God can take even our failures and turn them into something that produces good in our lives and others. This is the, this is the God we, we worship. This is the God who has redeemed us. 
Do you realize what you have? You have this in the face of every person who says, you failed me. In the face of every person who says, you messed up. You have the God who redeems you. Who has redeemed you in Christ. And it says, according, this is the first time it says, according to the riches of his grace. Right? This isn't like, oh, you, you, you had a hundred dollar debt and I've got a hundred and one bucks in the bank and uh, the last thing we can do about it is pay off this one debt. This is more like saying, we've got a million dollars in the bank, a hundred bucks is not going to be that big of a deal. Let's keep moving, right? This is the riches of his grace, that he has redeemed us in Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. So that when we look at our lives, it's not that we just say, oh, that was, <laughs> I can do whatever I want now. No. What we say is, look, I messed up. I failed. And yet, God can take even these failures that I look at and say, how can I, how can I turn it around? What can I do about it? How can I solve my problems? And instead say, I have a redeeming God. I'm redeemed. And again, some questions you can ask yourself. Because we don't always face that list of failures that we have in our lives. But sometimes something triggers it, right? Where did I start to list my failures today or this week, right? Where did I start doing that? Man, I messed up here, I messed up here, I messed up here. I deserve, you know. wait a second. What prompted a sense of failure or guilt? How has my glorious redemption enriched me right in, that, in the face of that list or that sense of failure, right? Did I, in the same time, as I went through my week, did I notice anyone who could have felt the same way, who I felt like, you know what, they're just burdened down with their sense of failure. You know what, you know what we do oftentimes, right, as Americans? When we sense someone who's burdened down with their sense of failure, what do we do? Don't want to be anywhere near that. Why? Because if I get near that, then I might be contaminated, so to speak, with their failure, right? Like, like failure kind of gets, it goes, it spreads. You know, it's not too different from COVID, right? right? Like, I just don't want to be, we stop being around people. <laughs> people that could contaminate us. And we're, we, we have a redeeming God. You know what? We have the ability, because we've been ourselves, to go to someone who's feeling that sense of failure, you know, and pass on a sense of redemption. Uh, and there's obviously, based on the situation, it might look different, it might you know, happen different, but this is what we have in Christ. Let's do one more, and then we'll be done for this morning, right? having purpose. Because we live in a world where we wonder, where is all this headed? Where is the election headed? Where is this country headed? Where is the world headed? Where is the economy headed? We have this general vague anxiety about the future that we wonder how things are going to go. I ran across this story about Michael Card and William Lane. He says, when New Testament scholar William Lane taught at Western Kentucky University, Michael Card, who was a musician, 
turned into a Christian musician, was a student of his. And they developed a friendship that led to a discipling relationship. Card's, Michael Card's book, The Walk, describes this intertwining of these two lives that grew out of their days together at the university. William Lane worked to live out the meaning of a redeemed light to the fullest extent, but he was not content until he passed it on to others, including Michael Card. Eventually, Professor Lane moved to another university. Years later, through a telephone call, Card learned that Lane was dying of cancer. Eventually, the Lanes moved to be near the Cards. As Card tells the story, Professor Lane had a purpose in doing so. He said to Card, I want to come to Franklin, where the Cards lived. I want to show you how a Christian man dies. The Lanes made the move, and many months later, Card's beloved mentor died. But those who truly worship God do so, being redeemed, even... Even a death is redeemed, right? And so, and that gives purpose then. Like I can use the difficult things of life, I can use the hard things of life, and I can look at my life and I can think, you know what? Uh, you know, th- this, this life is not all there is, so I can have purpose. I can, I can discipline myself. I can say no to certain things and I can say yes to others. Why? Because I know I have a purpose. And right, he says here, in him we have, we've, we know the mystery of his will because we're, all things are being set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Like we are on the winning team. We are part of the, in a sense, the ruling family, so to speak. We are sons and daughters of the king. And so we live with purpose, with discipline, with joy. Why? Because We can take everything that comes at us and say, let's do some good here. Let's do some good here. As much as God can enable me to do that. And so again, I don't have the the questions on the screen for this one. I think I forgot to put it on there. But it says, did I feel purposeless or hopeless today or this week? What prompted that? How has my purpose been transformed since I'm in Christ? Did I notice someone who is purposeless? How could they be encouraged? Like, we're just, just trying to process, trying to get there. Why? And why am I doing this? It's because what else do we have as believers, right? I, I, I know, I know, I know. You can go out there and you can say, I'm going to make a life for myself. What I can do, what I can accomplish, the, the skills and abilities I can have or develop, I'm going to make my life for myself. You can. And that's the only life you're going to have. And it might be 60, 70, 80 years, and then it's done. And then you face the consequences for your actions. The times when you thought you were doing the right thing and you failed anyway. Times when you should have glorified God and didn't. You can, you can go through life and say, you know what, you know what? I, I, I'm not going to live for myself. I'm going to do what everyone else tells me to do. <laughs> That's worse, frankly. Because <laughs> you're just living to please everyone. <laughs> And then no one's happy, (laughs) least of all you. But we have another option. It's the option of listening to the grace of God, saying, this is who I am in Christ, and I must cling to this grace. I must live in this grace. This grace must be a part of my life because of this is the foundation, the soul, the heart 
of who I am now in Christ. Not that I have made myself this way, but this is who I, God has made me. And we can go on to the last two, having an inheritance. But we're not going to do that today. We're done for, for today, okay? I just want to wrap it up by just saying that this is who we are in Christ. The Holy Spirit is with us. We are sealed. That means that the Holy Spirit, it, this, this process that we have is, is not something that we're going to lose. It's, it's not something that we can mess up because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. He has sealed us. And God's work is going to continue to work in us until the day we are fully redeemed, fully adopted. In the meantime, do you see the grace you have? Do, can you walk in that grace? And I know, I, I know, because I, I have the same struggle. I will feel rejected. I will feel abandoned. I will feel like an outsider. <laughs> I will feel like I've got no sense of purpose. Like, what am I doing here? I feel all those things at various points in time, various triggers. Things come at me at different parts of me that feel different ways, right? But God is in the process of weaving my soul together and trusting the grace of my Savior according to the riches of his grace. I first have to ask the question, is God doing that for you? Do you know that you're redeemed? Have you asked Christ? It says, forever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called? It's not something that your family can do for you. It's not something you can do by just saying, well, I'm going to go to church and I'm going to turn over a new leaf. No, just ask Jesus. He's the one who died for you and rose again. Ask him to save you. Have you done that? Are you trusting in that? And if you have done that, are you letting these truths knit your soul together so that every time you're thought, well, I'm, I'm on the outside, <laughs> I, guess, I guess I'm just no longer that important, you know, to this group of people. But you remind yourself, but I'm adopted, I'm chosen, I'm redeemed. And I can live with purpose. Why? Because Christ has won me. Christ has bought me. Christ has chosen me. And I am his. Will you live that way? Will you walk that path? Huh. It's so free. It's so light. It's so joyful. And it produces, because the Holy Spirit is in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. And we, we get blessed and we bless others out of the overflow of what God has done for us. Will you live that way? Heavenly Father, I'm preaching on amazing things, Father. It's like, like, like Paul says, these are the epitome of the spiritual blessings we have in Christ. The greatest prizes that we could achieve. And yet, Lord, we we miss out on them. We, we get focused on other things. We, we, we just get caught up in all the, the problems we have and how we need to solve those things rather than going back to the grace that we have received.
Lord, I, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone who is listening and has listened this morning. I pray that they would see once again your grace. The fact that they are chosen, adopted, redeemed, that they have purpose, that they have an inheritance, that are sealed with the Holy Spirit. These things are theirs in Christ. If there's someone here who hasn't trusted in Christ, I pray that they would. And I pray that for those of us who have, that we would, as we walk, whether we take some time journaling or we take some time talking with others, that we would let these truths weave into our souls. So they overflow with the love, joy, and peace that you bring. We thank you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.